morning, everybody. I trust you're all wide awake and uh, got a good night's sleep. And if you didn't, just go ahead and close those eyes and don't bother the people around you. You know, I may, you maybe heard of the, the guy who kept falling asleep right back there, I, not from this church, so I'm not pointing anybody out over there, but it's kind of in the back and, you know, it kind of bugs the pastor. You know, he saw him sleeping there, so he told the usher, he said, grab a stick next Sunday. When that guy starts nodding off, just wrap him on the head a little bit and, uh, you know, wake him up. So it, it happened. The guy started nodding off to sleep. The usher wrapped him on the head. He woke up and that was short-lived. A few moments later, he's nodding off again. So the usher went in and whacked him a little harder, <laughs> kept him awake for a few more minutes. And inevitably, he fell back asleep. And that time, the usher took that stick, and he hit him so hard, he knocked him out of the pew, almost knocked him out. And the recalcitrant member started getting back in his, the seat, and he was heard to say, hit me again, I can still hear him preaching. <laughs> so, so you, know, you know, whether you sleep in church or sleep at home, um, experts tell us we all dream, and we all dream on an average about two hours a night. Um, so if you figure that out, over a normal lifetime, think about this, you will dream away about five, six years of your life uh, in a normal lifetime. Now, they also tell us that you will only remember about 5%. The average person only remembers about 5% of what they dream. 95% is lost. Now, I can tell you that there was a king back in ancient Babylon by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who had a dream one night and it wasn't part of the 95% that he couldn't remember. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that we saw last week in our study of Daniel was so real, so troubling, so upsetting that he was willing to kill for it. He was willing to put to death all his counselors and wise men if they could not interpret the dream and give him his, the meaning of what he had dreamt. That's when the revealer of mysteries stepped in the God of heaven, who took a, a young Jewish exile who had been taken captive, brought him over to Babylon, and the revealer of mysteries, God himself, took this young boy and gave him Nebuchadnezzar's dream, gave him the interpretation of the dream so that he could go to the king and let him know what it was. Take your Bibles. We're in Daniel chapter 2, and that's where we pick up the story. After praising God for giving him the dream and its interpretation. We read here in chapter 2, um, verse 24. But there we are. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and spoke to him as follows Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Stop it. Stop, don't go killing anybody because I've got it. God has given me the dream and its interpretation. So we pick the story up there in verse 25. Then Ariok Hurley brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. I mean, he's kind of tooting his own horn there. I found a man, like, uh, you know, I was searching high and low, and you've, you're lucky you have me as your, you know, your captain of your bodyguard. The king said to Daniel in verse 26, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was Daniel's 
Babylonian name. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? No one else was able to, you know. Nobody else of the wise men. Can you do this? You young, 16, 17, now maybe 18-year-old young exile from the Jews? Daniel answered, verse 27. As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, diviners are able to declare it to the king. In other words, no, I can't. But, verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom resided in me more than any other living man but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Why did this King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king of ancient Babylon, have a dream? I think there's a couple reasons given in this text. First of all, so that God would be glorified, so that God would be honored, that the God of heaven would be recognized and honored. Uh, verse 27 and 28 said again, as for this mystery of which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there's a God in heaven who can. And here in this ancient land of Babylon that had its pantheon of gods, it's Marduk, the head of the pantheon, and Nebo, his son, the god Nebo, and all these other gods who had conquered the Jewish people and their Yahweh God, well, this whole scene, this whole situation is showing, no, all those other gods were inept. But there was a God in heaven who beat them all out and who told the dream and in its interpretation. The God of Israel is the supreme one. There's a second reason, though, why Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And it has to do with giving us understanding about the latter days. That's what it said there in verse 28. This dream is about the latter days. That phrase is used 13 times in the Old Testament, the latter days. And um, predominantly, and not to oversimplify it, but in the Old Testament, um, the, God recognized two ages, two time periods. There is the present age, and then there was the age to come. Pretty simple. The Old Testament recognizes two ages, the present age and the age to come. But it all centered around, the focal point was about the Messiah, the central figure of all history, the coming Messiah. The present age anticipated the coming Messiah. The age to come was when the Messiah came and fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. So two time periods, the present age and the age to come. The latter days is that time just before the present age ends and the age to come begins. And so what Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar, that the God of heaven, the revealer of mysteries, has something to say about the latter days. About that time as we approach the, the end of the present age and the coming of the age to come. So what was the dream? 
So verse 31 begins the informing of the king. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was sitting on the edge of his seat because all his other wise guys had never figured this out. They couldn't tell him the dream. But this young Daniel said in verse 31, you, O king, you were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking, verse 34, until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue and its feet of iron and clay and it crushed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze, the silver, the gold were all crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. And can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar sitting there and saying, you hit it, that's it. You, 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 You got my dream. Now, what does it mean? So he continues, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. And he says in verse 37, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and power, the strength and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. Nebuchadnezzar, You are the head of gold. Notice again where Daniel puts the emphasis. The God of heaven has elevated you to that position. God has made all this happen. But you are the head of gold. Ancient Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, reigned for 43 years. The head of gold, you we won't take the time, but you can go back and read your history books of world history. The, the, what Nebuchadnezzar did and the building and the, the glory of uh, Babylon, ancient Babylon, the Greek, ancient Greek city, said it was the city of cities. The wonders of the world, uh, the, the seventh wonder of the world, or one of the wonders of the world, was the hanging gardens that he built for his wife, supposedly, in Babylon. A magnificent city. You are the head of gold. There's no one like you. But in 539 B.C., Babylonian Empire was conquered. It was conquered by the next power, which is just briefly referred to in verse 39, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Not glorious and head of gold like you, arms and breast of silver. And we check our history books, and sure enough, in 539 B.C., it was the Medo-Persian Empire that arose and conquered the Babylonian Empire. Ten years earlier, in 549, the Persians had defeated the the Medes and uh, assimilated them into their power structure, kind of a a common government, the Medo-Persian Empire. And here in this image, silver, the two arms, you have the Medo-Persian Empire that took care of the great, magnificent Babylonian power in 539 B.C. He goes on in verse 39 and mentions there's another third kingdom, 
that will become, that will come a kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. And once again, check your history books out. It's all spelled out there. In uh, 331 B.C., there was a young warrior, a powerful Greek son of Philip of Macedon, the, the great powerful Alexander the Great, who came and conquered the world in five years. Lightning speed, a magnificent strategist, great strength of power. Sadly, if you know the history, he died when he was a young man, what, like 33 years old? And his kingdom, his power was divided among his four generals. We'll learn more about that when we get uh, later in Daniel. Um, but that was the third world power on the human scene, the Greek uh, empire. He goes on and continues, and it says in verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. And as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, though it will have in it the toughness of iron, as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. A fourth kingdom. Read the history books. Who came on the scene? Well, the Roman Empire. The power of Rome. And notice the movement from quality of gold, silver, bronze, and now iron. You decrease in value, but you certainly increase in strength. The power of Rome, a thousand years of rule, of world domination. Two legs of iron. In the end of the fifth century, the western part of that Roman Empire ended, 476. A.D. 476. The Roman Empire continued on uh, in what was called the Byzantine, the, the eastern world that uh, had its capital in Constantinople until the Ottoman Turks took it over in, in the um, mid-15th century. But the power of Rome, unrivaled, unmatched. But we get to this this part of the legs where the iron continued into the feet and into the toes. Again, verse 41, you saw the feet, the toes, they're, they're mixed, this clay and partly of iron, a divided kingdom. Verse 42 says, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seat of men but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. The interpretation of, Dan, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, is a little more involved here when you get to these, this iron and legs and then the feet and the mixed with clay and the toes, and it gets a little more complicated too because you can thumb through your history books and you can kind of wonder, what in the world is this all about? We've seen Babylon. We understand the Medo-Persian Empire. We've seen the power of Greece. We've seen Rome. But we get some hints here because it says the iron kind of continues. This vestige almost of a, of a Roman Empire continued on. And, and we do know from history that the Roman Empire did continue on in those forms, but grew weaker and weaker and internal corruption and, and just kind of lost its way and barbarians came and 
the Roman Empire just got kind of mixed in with the Western world. And what's going on here? What's happening? There's ten toes. Could those be like ten kingdoms or ten forms of the Roman Empire? Or, 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 or what's happening here? What, what, what is this? Later in Daniel chapter 7, we'll find out that uh, these images that Nebuchadnezzar had that are given kind of from a human kingly perspective, a great statue that was awesome and magnificent with gold and silver and bronze and iron, it's, it's repeated from God's perspective of beasts. We'll get there in Daniel chapter 7, but four great beasts. But the fourth beast had ten horns like ten toes, but Daniel informs us that those ten horns are ten kings, kingdoms. Chapter 7 of Daniel kind of informs us of what's going on here in chapter 2, but it's, it's mysterious, this mixture of iron and clay. And it says in my text, and the New King James, and even I think the NIV, it'll say that they were combined, these ten kings were combined, mixed mingled with one another in the, in the seed of men. If you've got an English standard version, it jumps and makes a, um, I think, a translation error. It says something to the effect they mix with one another in marriage. But the seed of men, the mingling. So if, if you've got the ESV, it'll use the word marriage, which is not in the text. It's an assumption that is made. Um, I'm not sure what's going on here. I really don't. Um, there's something about the Roman Empire that continues. The iron continues. And it's, a, it's some type of a, of, a, of a ruler, of a government of some sort, probably in a ten divisions, ten forms, ten kingdoms of some sort. And it says that they mix or they mingle with the, the seed of men. And there's lots of different interpretations of that. Most understand that. It could be there's a, a diversity of people that come together and are mingled together, the, the um, kind of a, um, amalgamation of people groups that come together and intermarry. So that's the ESV gets that understanding of marriage. They mingle in marriage. It could have the idea of a, of a coming together, of mingling culturally and socially and, and politically. Some say there'll be various forms of government that'll arise. You've got these various communism or capitalism or you know, democracies or whatever that'll come together and somehow merge into some type of a, of a united global type of form, some world government, some even say that could be something more sinister. It says of these ten toes, they will, it says, mingle in the seed of men. That's what it says literally. And some will say, you know, that conjures up some interesting maybe connections because there was a day back in Genesis 6 when the sons of God, it says, the angelic realm came to earth and mingled and cohabitated with the daughters of men. And when that happened, God says, I'm going to destroy this world. And the great flood came. Um, you can read about that on your own if you want, but uh, is there some type of a weird demonic 
something that takes place at that, in this, this final form of human government where, where there's a mixing of the demonic and the human and kind of like what you see in Hollywood with you know, this transhumanism and what they love to, to talk about today. We don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe by the time I get to chapter 7 and 8, we'll, we'll have an epiphany. Where's Daniel when you need him? You know, the revealer of mysteries. One thing I will say, though, is that these ten toes, this, these feet and toes this, of this statue of this image is the final form of, of human government that we know of. It's the final form of human government. How do we say that? Look at verse 44. Verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. There was no, no one else come after that. And it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. In the days of those kings, there's a fifth kingdom that's going to rise and will crush and put it in to all other powers, all other human domination, all other human governments. He goes on in verse 45 and says, And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, this statue, the great God has made known to the king what's going to take place in the future. And the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. The feet, the toes, that part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream has not happened yet. How do we know that? Because that final kingdom here on earth hasn't taken place yet. We're going to have an election that's coming, presidential election. We're still doing those things. There's still governments around the world. There's still powers that come and rise and fall. But what we just read, the interpretation from Daniel, is that there is a coming day when God is going to put an end to all human governments and there will be one power, one glorious kingdom, a stone not cut with hands that will destroy all those kingdoms. When is that going to take place? The head of gold, Babylon, we've seen it. It's come and gone. The arms, the breast of silver, Medo-Persians, history tells us, came and went. The belly of bronze, thighs, belly of bronze, the Greek power, empire, Alexander the Great and his four generals have seen their day. The Roman power, the iron legs, they've come and gone. But what else have we seen in human history? Well, 2,000 years ago, the king of kings came. The stone of offense, the rock, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, Jesus Christ, left his throne in glory and came to this earth 2,000 years ago. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the one who the present age was anticipating and the age to come would see in all his glory reign supreme. Jesus came, the Messiah, 
the Son of God. And he was executed by the legs of iron. Rome put him to death. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Forty days, he takes his believers and his fellow disciples and he teaches them about the coming kingdom. And then he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. What's, what's happening here? One thing I can say with certainty is that what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and what Daniel is interpreting in this final form of human power um, hasn't happened yet because in Christ's first coming, all human governments and powers were not crushed and defeated. No, the stone that is, that is supposed to be coming, Jesus came, but he ascended to heaven, and human powers remain. The great mountain of God's kingdom that was to fill the whole earth, have you checked the news? It ain't here, folks. We've got a mess on our hands. I don't care who you vote for this year. It's a mess. So when will the final kingdom come? The one that God said he's going to set up that is going to be forever and ever and nothing comes after it. When in the world is this going to happen? Well, we'll talk more about that next week. So... Suffice it to say, what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt and what Daniel interpreted has not completely happened to its fullest extent yet. It hasn't happened. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, true to his word in verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel, gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods, as a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you've been able to reveal this mystery. And he promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts. That's what he said he was going to do. If you could interpret the dream, make it known and interpret it. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And I, I, I bet you my half of the farm that none of those guys complained because it was Daniel who saved their neck. And now here this 18-year-old kid is going to be in charge over all of them. Verse 49, and Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was his three friends from Jerusalem over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. You know, C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> in his fantasy novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, in that that novel, um, there are four kids, and one of them, Lucy, they're playing hide-and-go-seek, if you've read it or seen the movie, and uh, Lucy hides in the wardrobe, playing hide-and-go-seek. Musty old wardrobe. But then she found out it opened into a whole nother realm, the mystical, magical land of Narnia, a whole nother realm where eventually... She and her sister and two brothers end up being the queens and kings of Narnia. Now imagine if Lucy had just been content to stay in the wardrobe. 
among the musty old clothes and keep playing hide-and-go-seek. She would have never found the mystical land of Narnia, and C.S. Lewis would have had a really short novel that wouldn't have been worth reading. May I suggest this morning that there are, there are two realms that we need to be understanding, two, two worlds, two kingdoms, a wardrobe, a Narnia. There is this present earthly existence, the now, we're living in it. We're in the wardrobe, you could say. It's the world where men still rule over men. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Nations elect and nations don't elect. We're in the the now realm, a world that is marked by disappointments and dangers and disease, discouragements. It's a world that is uh, oftentimes very mundane. It's the world we're living in. I don't know what you did yesterday. It was probably rather mundane. I was studying and Lisa was shampooing our carpets. You, you, you missed a spot there, honey. Over here. Do a better job over here. You know, it's, it's, it's the now life. It, it's the life we're living. We pay our bills. We go to work. We live our lives, we maybe get married, maybe have children, we think about retirement, we go on vacation. It's the now living. It's, it's the musty old wardrobe life. But the Bible tells us there's another realm, another world. There's, a, there's another kingdom. There's a Narnia that's looming on the horizon. And it's another kingdom just like in Daniel's interpretation and in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's a real kingdom. Babylon was a real kingdom of man on earth. The Medo-Persian was a real kingdom. Greece was a real empire, a real power on earth. Rome literally was a, an earthly realm, and, and there's something that's coming. It's, it's ten toes, and it's, it's, it's a mixture of something of what was the glory of Rome and, and whatever that is. But in the days of those kings, another kingdom is going to arise, something that is earthly, just like all those other kingdoms, something here that's coming. The God of heaven is going to set it up, it says, and it'll be a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's a kingdom where Daniel says this in chapter 7, jumping ahead, where one like the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. All the world will bow before this stone of offense, this rock, a kingdom that Isaiah says is full of righteousness, is full of justice, is full of peace, unexplainable joy. Two worlds, two realms, the present one, the future one, the now and the then, the wardrobe, the Narnia that's coming. We live obviously in the now, but here's the the thing. We have to be careful that we don't live for the now. That, that the occupation of our affections, of our heart, of, 
of uh, the, the totality of our thoughts are all focused on the now, living for the now. We have to be careful of that. We have to be careful that we don't get all caught up in, in the politics of the day, the entertainment of the day. We don't get all caught up in the financial markets of the day and what's happening. And, and it just focuses our attentions and our affections all for the now. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that because we live here. We, we, we live in the now, so we have to be about that work. But the book of Daniel is telling us that there's just far more to the now. There's far more to wardrobe living in the musty old dark, damp closet. There's a then. And it is as real a kingdom that's coming, and it is as real as the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian and the Greek and the Roman Empire was. It is as real, and it's going to come and put it into all human governments and all human rule, and all peoples and nations will come and serve the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. The revealer of mysteries, God himself, has told us this. And we need to recognize it. Or we'll be in trouble in this life. Randy Alcorn writes, being oblivious to eternity leaves us experts in the trivial and novices in the significant. We end up majoring on the momentary and then we minor on the momentous. Or as Malcolm Muggeridge once put it, the only ultimate tragedy we can experience on earth is to feel too at home here. The ultimate tragedy is that we feel to at home, in the now, because that's all we've lived for, is the now. Neglecting the then. And yet, here's the good news. That king, that Messiah that came 2,000 years ago, for a brief time here on earth, who came and walked this earth, and, and it seemed like no one was the wiser, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, no formliness, no comeliness that we would look at him like, wow, here's the king. For a brief time, he walked this earth, fully identifying with humanity so that he could die at the hands of the legs of iron, the Roman Empire, be nailed to a cross like a common criminal. Why? so that he could take our sin upon himself and satisfy his Father's holy, righteous call, demands for a payment of sin. The gulf that separated mankind from a holy God, that gulf was spanned, that, that chasm was spanned when Jesus Christ gave his life on that cross. And he pays for our sin, and he rose again on the third day, and he says, I want to offer you the free gift of eternal life. Free gift. I covered all the charges. I've paid him in full. And all you have to do is believe on me 
and you will have eternal life. Accept that I died for you, I rose again, I did it for you, and that if you trust that I will give you eternal life, you will get it in all its glory. Now. In the wardrobe, you will have life. He says, I came to give it to you in abundance. So the wonderful good news this morning is while we are still waiting for the then and the looming Narnia that's just coming, while we're in the wardrobe, the stinky, smelly mess of this wardrobe life, this Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who's coming again to set up his earthly realm, this Jesus can give our life meaning and purpose and fullness and joy inexpressible. He can fill our life with such glory more so than what the world could ever begin to give us. So that while we live in the now, we can have a little bit of the then revealed right here. And we can experience it right now. Eternal life that can be ours if we live for Him, trust Him, order our life according to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit that He's given us. Our now can be glorious and just a little foretaste of glory divine of what's coming. That's the good news. So let's not focus on the now, living for the now. C.S. Lewis once said, aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. And I can't tell you for sure what having that eternal perspective means for you personally. You go to the Lord, talk to Him, say, Lord, help reorient my thinking to the then so that I don't get all so caught up in the now, so that I can live for you in the now and have a little bit of the then ooze out of the now. It means having more of an eternal perspective than a temporal. It means living more by faith and not by sight. It means we, we treasure the coming King and live for Him. All because the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense came 2,000 years ago and loved us so much he died for us and rose again to give us life abundantly in the now. And we know this is all true because the revealer of mysteries gave a dream to a pagan king 2,600 years ago and then informed a young Jewish slave by the name of Daniel who was maybe 18 years old about the meaning of that dream who wrote it down in a book and we've just looked at it today. How do we know this is true? Because the reveal of mysteries has told us. So folks, let's go out and live for him while we're still in the now and let people see what a little bit of the then looks like in the now so that our now can be filled with a whole lot of then. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for allowing us the privilege of knowing you through Jesus Christ, the King. And Father, I pray that you will, as we continue our study of Daniel, open up our understanding and our minds to the degree that you have revealed it in your word, to more wonderful mysteries. Give us understanding and fill our life with hope and meaning. Help us to reorient whatever we have to to the then so that our now is just filled with, um, <laughs> it's just filled with Jesus. Because that's what the world needs. They need a big dose of you, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.